Hi, uh, I'm Remy. I'm an alcoholic and I am also an adult child of alcoholics and a dysfunctional family. That means I'm not just AA, I'm also ACA. And as of today, the speaking opportunity, I am 43 days sober. We started drinking when I was nine or 10 and I'm 36 now. So that's at least 26 years of my life spent in a bottle. And as I like to say, I am not a fucking genie. So I'm going to start this off for the people who are listening to this recording right now by saying, I'm not wearing pants right now. You don't know. You can't tell. You can't see me. Yeah, that's what I've decided to start this off with because that's totally what I needed to do. Yeah, so now that's out of the way. I'm going to say that I start, uh, uh, I suffer from CPTSD, PTSD, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, agoraphobia. Oh boy, and a bunch of other bullshit that you never really want to talk about unless you're in a soundproof room with a medical professional. There is a laundry list of things wrong with me and alcoholism is just one of them. Uh, I'm a fucking nutter. On other days, I'm an apathetic piece of crap. I'm crapathetic. No question. I have been behind bars in my life. I have been in a mental institution, I have been in a psych ward, but alcoholism had, and I do say had in the past tense, its own bars around my mind. And when I drank, it gave me wings. It wasn't Red Bull, but it definitely gave me wings. Very briefly, it would let me soar. Alcohol gave me the wings to fly and then it would take away the sky. Every morning, when I wake up, I spend the first half an hour to an hour very discombobulated and confused, very dazed and dumb. Even now, sober, I am not a morning person at all. Um, you cannot talk to me in the morning. I will kill you with a single look and pour you a nice cup. Shut the fuck up. I don't think I'll ever be a morning person, but things change. You never know. In the morning, I would wait until I'd handled all of my daily responsibilities. I would order in more alcohol for delivery at about 10 a.m., which would arrive within the hour. And within that hour, I would make my phone calls, respond to my emails, all of my business responsibilities, clean up the household, and then I would start drinking and writing, typically until about 7 p.m., both writing and drinking. So I would get eight hours a day of writing and drinking. I was destroying my liver and my kidneys. My cell counts were insane. My doctor was freaked out, like right freaked out. I would typically drink a two six a day, which is 26 ounces or 750 milliliters, or I would drink a 40, which is also known as 1,140 milliliters or 40 ounces. Uh, depending on what measurement you use there. Uh, and I took the advice that's often accredited to Hemingway, which was to write drunk, edit sober. That is very bad advice, by the way. But Hemingway does have this classic moment uh, in The Sun Also Rises, which is a book you either love or you hate. And it's high school, so it's easy for a lot of people to read. 
But in The Sun Also Rises, when someone asked Mike Campbell how he went bankrupt, and all he can say is gradually, then suddenly. That's how my alcoholism hit. You wake up one morning afraid to live, afraid to face the day sober. I'm still not a morning person, but I've definitely changed the way that I face my mornings. I'm not afraid of having to face the day sober anymore. But my spiritual moment was very anticlimactic. I was quite literally waking up one morning and I was just wide awake. I woke up, my eyes opened, and I was unusually awake and hyper-focused on just one thought that I didn't want to drink anymore. I actually remember the thought and it was, and I quote, I think I'm done with drinking. Yeah, I'm done. Cool. And for me, it was oddly that simple. That's the thing about change. It just happens and you are different. And I think that was my spiritual moment. And I say, I think, because I keep waiting for something big to happen, because isn't that the thing about spiritual moments? They're supposed to be huge and blow your mind. But that didn't happen for me. It was quiet. Quiet and assertive. I still don't recognize the woman in the mirror right now. She's someone I haven't known for a very long time, but we're becoming more acquainted. She's a nice person, if a little talkative. Okay, a lot talkative. But I guess when you're drunk, all you do is talk in cursive. And now I can actually understand her. So I think we have a lot of catching up to do. One thing I do know is that she hates mornings just as much as I do. And she's kind of funny in a weird way. Well, she's very weird, but she's kind of funny. I suppose I should express the fact that I wholly and fully support Rule 62. And if you don't know what that is, it's to never take yourself too seriously, to be able to laugh at oneself. And I find that this in itself helps me find the humor when I'm feeling down. I'm adopted and I often suffer from feeling like I'm the black sheep of the family, that I'm broken, unwanted, the scapegoat. But I have a tendency to think of kintsugi, which is the Japanese art of fixing something broken, often pottery or something fragile with gold. And it leaves these beautiful gold scars where the cracks were on these pieces, making the piece more beautiful than it was before it was broken which is kind of like saying that I am still beautiful in spite of my scars. I understand that I can't stand for the whole community. People who suffer from CPTSD, PTSD, agoraphobia, we all have our own personal experiences and deal with these kinds of things in our own way. But I'll be honest, I would much rather shit in my hands and clap than go outside and deal with people. I saw the neighbors again yesterday, and I think I'm just gonna have to move. It's really peopley outside my house and I hate it. Sadly, a lot of us who are agoraphobic or PTSD sufferers or CPTSD sufferers, we end up being alcoholics and use alcohol to self-medicate. And I was one of those people. 
And again, I say was in the past tense because I'm working on NLP, which is also known as neural linguistic processing, which is putting it in the past so that my subconscious remembers to use it in the past. I also use my word sense of humor to deal with life. And the close-up life is so serious and it's a tragedy, but once it's in the distance a little, it kind of turns into a comedy. I think I'm badly paraphrasing Shakespeare there, by the way. I think it helps me the most because life is too short not to laugh at shit like that. And the stuff that I can't laugh at, I compartmentalize and I just kind of tuck it away for a while until I can deal with it. I know that's probably not the healthiest way to deal with things, but you know, that's just the way I deal with things sometimes. And I guess what I'm about to tell you is an example of that, how life in the close-up can be a tragedy, but in the distance, it becomes undeniably amusing. And more often than not, if you allow yourself to learn from these experiences, you'll find yourself better for it, more patient. I don't stand for the whole community, again, but to me, my weird sense of humor has gotten me through a lot, and we call this survivor's humor. You can laugh to keep from crying. Um, once my mother forgot to pick me up from a whale watching tour in BC while we were visiting family. <laughs> it was a whole day excursion. And by the end of it, I was exhausted and sunburnt and I was done with the day. I don't know if you can tell, but I am like pale 1000, you know, I had to reapply my sunscreen and I was a 50, like every 30 minutes just to keep myself from dying. And yeah, I looked like a cherry tomato. It was pretty bad. And I was so tired. I waited around an hour because she was supposed to come and pick me up. And my uncle's place isn't that far from the docks, but she didn't show up. So I, I gave up and I started trudging in the direction that I thought my uncle's place was. Uh, and as I trudged, I thought of how I would give her one big piece of my mind. Like I would give her one hell of a talking to once I got there. Like, how could you forget your own daughter? Again, for Christ's sake. And this wasn't the first or second or even the third time that she had forgotten me. And I was just thinking of all of the nasty things I would say. But after walking for a while, it, I started to panic. And I was thinking like, what if something had happened? If she or someone had gotten hurt or someone in my family got it wounded or, you know, I started freaking out. Just uh, started thinking of all the things that could have made her not show up because who forgets their daughter? And I immediately erase all the previous times that she's forgotten me. I'm worried about her now. My mind begins to reel with the possibilities that somebody's dead. I don't know. It's my fault. I will find my own way there. It's okay. I'm an independent person. I can handle this. So I walk about two miles in the direction of my uncle's place, hoping that I'm going to find it. And this super retro VW bus that pulls up alongside me and an old lady with long gray hippie hair. She asked me if I was lost, like if I was okay. I said that I was looking for my uncle's place and she says that they're neighbors. Talk about luck. She says that she'll give me a ride. I don't know what the hell possessed me. Maybe it was the fact that I was sunburnt and looked like a freaking toast point. But I accepted this ride. I don't know what's wrong with me. 
because you're not supposed to get into a car with strangers. But apparently my brain was fried just like my skin and I got in the car or the VW bus. Cool, by the way. Not wondering if they're a part of Charles Manson's, you know, group from the future or anything or serial killers living on an island in a remote place of BC. No, I get in. And I'm glad I did because they were awesome. They rolled down the windows and let me get air on my sunburnt face. And like, we talked the whole way there. And you can't ask me what we talked about because goddamn, I cannot remember. I can't remember a thing. What we talked about, I just knew that it was hilarious and I had a great time and they were really funny. They were awesome. What a trip. When I arrived at my uncle's place, everyone was there except for my mother. Um, no one had heard the phone when I had attempted to call because they were all outside. My mother had taken one of the cars, but she wasn't there. Excuse me. Um, nobody was all that worried about me because they had assumed my mother would pick me up. And they thought, you know, maybe they went out, grabbed a bite to eat. I mean, she has been out all day. But no. And she's wondering, why the hell is she pulling up with the neighbors? So she's moving quickly towards the Volkswagen bus. And we part ways. And the hippie lady leans over, gives me a hug, and I get out. I'm always telling myself, I'm always going to remember these people. So, you know. We have a brief discussion and by then, I'm just, I'm done with the day. When my mother finally does reappear, you know, uh, my aunt had already gotten me a big glass of ice water, uh, made me a sandwich and got an umbrella to hang over the pool so that I could chill in the water and uh, soak in the shade basically. And she had reapplied my sunscreen, you know, because that's what mother figures do. They make sure you're okay. Um, and when my mother finally did reappear, she was with countless shopping bags. She had forgotten about picking me up because she had gone shopping. And this is not, this is not a random thing. Like once my mother was at the mall, we went to the mall together and she told me to meet back with her a half an hour later. And I waited there for an hour and I finally called her cell phone from a payphone when I was like, 12 and I was like hey where are you and she's like oh I was just out shopping and I was like okay where are you now and she's like I'm in the car she's like where are you and I'm like I was fucking with you you forgot me and she laughed and I laughed because apparently it's funny which I always thought it was until someone told me it wasn't you shouldn't abandon your child you shouldn't forget about your child I didn't know that but you learn. But I got mad. And it was the first time that I felt justified in my anger. We were in a different province on the other side of the country in a place where I didn't know any phone numbers. I didn't know anybody. I had to get in contact with anyone. And she forgot me. Not for the first time, second time, third time. Oh my God, I've lost count. My aunt was extremely displeased. And she practically pulled my mother into the house by her ear like she was a child and it took everything within me not to you know feel that shout and fraud like I just wanted to laugh in her face because somebody was finally you know 
parenting her, telling her, this is not okay. Well, my aunt made my mother apologize to me. And to this day, my mother still hates my aunt. She hates her. A few years later, I did a DNA test, Ancestry and 23andMe to look for my biological family. And as I looked through the matches, there was a face I remembered. It was the woman from the VW bus. She was my biological family. And she lived right next door to my adopted family, my uncle. And the thing was, is that I wouldn't have found it to be so funny. I remembered them. I wouldn't have found any of that to be funny. In fact, it was a very uh, day for me until this happened. So in the close-up, it really sucked, you know? And we, like, we reconnected and I found her on Facebook and we talked and I asked her if they still had the VW bus and she was really confused because she didn't know how I knew that they even had a VW bus. And I explained that she once picked up a girl on the side of the road on the island and drove me to my adopted family's place. And she and her husband actually remembered me. Life is too weird not to be funny. If my mother had been on time, if she had been there, if she hadn't forgotten about me, I never would have laughed with them or gotten to ride in that funky old VW bus. I never would have clicked with them so abruptly or remembered them years later when I finally did the DNA test. I'm not a God person. I am not even an agnostic person, but sometimes these things happen and you can't deny that it's there, that something is happening and you can't not see the connection. I mean, that tripped me out. The fact that they're neighbors was the trippiest part for me. The fact that I met them. I can tell you bluntly that I don't agree with AA entirely. And as a very new, very green AA individual that I am, this is to be expected. It's not that I don't appreciate what AA has done for countless others or for myself, but to question things is human and to err is human. And we're supposed to admit that we're powerless and that our lives are unmanageable. But I didn't think my life was unmanageable. For over a decade, I was a highly successful photographer before I was crushed under the weight of my responsibilities. I traveled the world. I was in countless magazines, even in Vogue. And I worked with amazing clientele and some of the most beautiful men and women of the industry. And I got to go to some truly breathtaking locations in the world. During one of my rare blackouts about 12 years ago, I actually purchased my website and created it. My business cards, my Facebook page, the yellow pages listing, and entered three photography contests, two of which I won. And while drunk, I wrote three books and was working on two more. I'm now an agoraphobic, agoraphobic who struggles to leave the house. But that happened before I got sober. I used to use alcohol as an excuse and as a way to leave the house. And eventually I was using it as an excuse and a reason to not leave the house. Now that I'm sober, I can't write more than a paragraph really. But I have definitely left the house more in the past 43 days of sobriety than I did entirely of last year. I didn't even leave the house once from June to October. Not once. I had my groceries delivered. I had 
my cigarettes delivered. I had my alcohol delivered and I didn't go outside, not even into my own backyard. It's a little conflicting because while drunk, I was a workaholic chasing my dreams constantly and succeeding. But what good is the victory if you're not there for the moments leading up to it? It felt like someone else wrote those books. It felt like someone else took those photos. I would work for 20 hours straight, spend four hours of sleep, and I would get up and I would start all over again. I was insatiable. I wanted so much more, more and more and more as alcoholics are off to do. And I wanted to succeed and strive for all of the things I thought I would never have in my life. The things my mother and my father kept telling me were pipe dreams, that they would never come to fruition. I wanted to show them that I was worthy, that I could do these things. And like many children's, and like many children, sorry, my brain, like many children of alcoholics, the disease is hereditary, right? We end up drinking to numb the pain, numb the noise, numb ourselves, numb the world around us, because it is a cruel and vicious place, and we are simply existing in this visceral, disgusting age where everything is dark and we are fighting for a dream which no one can afford. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps, they say, but what if you don't have the fucking boots? But here I was, and I was building my boots out of duct tape and plastic bags from the garbage, from the dumpsters to make those dreams come true at the cost of my body and my mind and all of my spirituality, what little of those things that I actually had. And I was willing to sacrifice myself, all of myself, for a glimpse of that through fuzzy alcoholic goggles and consider myself blessed for even having that. I survived all my calories from alcohol, and I would forego food entirely because I couldn't afford it. It was one thing or the other, pay my bills and buy alcohol or pay my bills and buy food. I made a choice. And I thought that all people, all artists had to suffer for their craft. So many of us, heroin users, Pill poppers, alcoholics, artists have to suffer. Whether you're a writer, Charles Bukowski, Ernest Hemingway, drunks, photographers and artists, all artists needed to suffer for their craft. And damn, did I suffer. <laughs> God, I would survive on no sleep and caffeine to push myself and create these things from thin air. And I was proud of myself for having done that, for having existed on a can of tuna and an apple a day for three weeks and alcohol. And yes, even now, I am still proud of it. I know it sounds stupid, but my past is my past and it is mine. No matter how others may want me to look upon it with a frown, life is too fucking short and I can't fathom letting what amazing things I have done, creating light and fire to light the darkness, not only for myself, but for others. I can't imagine letting that go. I know that it went through years of suffering at the cost of myself and others but I don't want to let it go because it is mine, even though it is a shit show. And here I am before you, I am sober and strange, clear-minded and focused. 
I have always wanted more and more. And I have given so much and tumbled down that rapid hole. And I drank the potion and smoked the hookah and never asked the caterpillar what was in the pipe. And I was a fantastical beast of imagination, of creativity, a wonder to those who met me until I wasn't, until I wasn't, until the spark gave out, until I burnt out and I crashed and I collapsed under the weight of everything and everyone I had taken on. And I never realized that I was putting stress on a structure that wasn't up to code to begin with. And down came baby, cradle and all. And yes, I recognize that there is a person within me that grieves for the loss of the person I once was, that I should be ashamed of all that I have done, resentments, regrets, rage against the machine that created this monster, and then rinse and repeat. But when it comes down to it, I'm still an alcoholic and I will be for the rest of my life. And how fucking depressing is that? Here's the catch, though. That's not. It's a natural order of your experience when you first become sober. Many people grieve their loss of alcohol in the way that you would grieve a death. The pain and sadness of the grief feeling overwhelming, it is actually normal to feel weak and fragile, especially during the early days of recovery. Even when we're stepping back and looking at sobriety, we can grieve our loss of our addiction, and a lot of people do, and it tends to follow the typical five steps of grief. Denial, I'm not a drunk. Anger, I'm not a fucking drunk. Bargaining, sorry, I forgot the order for a second. I can handle it. I'll drink less. Depression. What have I become? Oh, no. <sighs> Acceptance. Okay, I'm a drunk, but I want to do something about it. And you may go through these steps of grief over and over again. That's normal. Healing isn't linear. It doesn't go on a straight line upwards. Some days will be easier than others, and some days it'll feel like you are in the depths of despair fighting monsters that only you can see and hear. And it's normal to feel overwhelmed. These are all very normal feelings. Someone was telling me in the first year that if you have to smoke, smoke, and if you have to eat, eat, and if you have to sleep, sleep. Anything to stay sober. And I can bitch about how I feel. And people here in the fellowship, they hear me. And I may not connect with some, but that doesn't matter. If one person out there hears me and can relate, a newcomer or an old timer who needed a reminding of a battle that they once fought or are fighting over again today, then that's all that matters. My journey is new and I am bound to struggle. Every single day is a learning experience for me now. It's actually quite beautiful, uh, scary, exciting, loud, really loud, especially when you don't numb things. But I'm here and I'm sober and I'm looking forward to tomorrow. And as anticlimactic as that may seem to some, it is what it is. I lived a life of ups and downs, of unbridled excitement and danger where I should have died many times before and I didn't. For some reason, I'm still here when countless others are not, many of them my friends. And they get the opportunity to learn from my mistakes, to live a life of peace and to engage in that wonderful pursuit of happiness.
I think that's all I can ask for. Thank you.